Welcome to Media in Transition 7 on the MIT campus, where the world gathered to address a key question affecting all of us. Just how are we coping with the instability of media platforms? The conference was held in May 2011, and along with the academic contribution of hundreds of scholars and the insights of a dozen plenary speakers, the conference was made possible through the financial support of the MIT Communications Forum, Comparative Media Studies, Writing and Humanistic Studies, Literature at MIT, and the Technology and Culture Forum. I want to send out a, 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 a specific, deeply uh, uh, felt thank you to my right arm, Brad Sewell. All of you in the conference, probably, probably he's the only one that every single person at this conference has had some contact with. Uh, thank you, Brad. And finally, I want to say one quick word about a missing a figure who's been haunting my imagination, and I expect many of you. you uh, this is the first Media and Transition Conference that I've organized without the partnership of Henry Jenkins. Uh, I, and in fact, at many points during the process of planning the conference and organizing it and thinking about how to articulate our themes, I, mi I found myself missing his visionary intensity and uh, remarkable intelligence. Uh, Henry has been actually following the tweets on, uh, that have been going up on about the conference. So I hope I haven't seen them myself yet, but I hope they haven't been too unflattering. Uh, in any case, I want to I, I want to say one final sort of word of thank you to one of the sort of visionary figures who now gone from MIT, but whose but whose influence and presence remains. And we hope that the next media and transition conference two years hence, Henry will be a speaker. All right. Uh, William. And if I could just grab the microphone to say also, I mean, the organizing committee, David and uh, Nick and Jim and myself, I mean, it was really a fun group to work with. Again, I want to thank Brad as well, because this is a conference, just to put it in personal terms, I, I come here as an attendee. I don't think once about any of the organizational stuff. And, you know, it's just hard to, it just unfolds and it unfolds wonderfully. So, Brad, thanks. And with Henry, for all you tweeters out there, give him a shout out. Bombard him with tweets. You'll love it. Okay. Okay. Thanks, uh, William. Uh, this is our last session, and of course, Henry's a friend of everyone. But uh, we're still standing. It's MIT, so it's a great place to come for a conference. And as I was remarking to somebody a little earlier, uh, Boston's a great midway uh, midway point for people from all over, and uh, I think. Uh, this conference has uh, been incredibly energetic, interesting, uh, and various. So uh, I thank everybody for that. Uh, I'm Jim Parody. I'm interim director of CMS. Uh, and it's hard to believe that the year's almost finished. Uh, so uh, this conference is sort of a uh, year-end event that is uh, a great sort of punctuation point because... Uh, there are so many different uh, topics here that uh, come up during the year, and there are all kinds of individuals and interesting people from interesting backgrounds representing them. So we have four of those people here on our panel, and the idea of this panel is to uh, 
go over some of the topics and themes of the conference that people have picked up on, uh, their thoughts on what those themes have uh, accomplished, uh, what sorts of ideas might, have, might be missing. Uh, healthy critique is invited. Uh, and any kind of patterns that people may have noticed uh, would be very interesting uh, to hear about. Uh, the format is everybody gets 10 to 15 minutes, whatever they like, to reflect on a conference. Uh, and then uh, we will open it up to the floor. And part of our interest here is to also think up uh, new possible topics for the next conference, MIT 8, uh, in two years. So uh, I'm hoping people have some ideas there, too. So uh, let me just uh, briefly introduce people. And I invite all the panelists to say a few more words about themselves if they uh, feel like it. Uh, to my left here is uh, Pat Burton, who is the Associate Dean for Research in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Science at Dublin City University. His books include uh, Hollywood Utopia, Ecology in Contemporary American Cinema, uh, Continuum Guide to Media Education, and the Historical Dictionary of Irish Cinema. Uh, to the left of Pat is uh, Lana Schwartz. Lana Short Schwartz? Lana Schwartz. Yes, yes, I, I, I'm sorry about that. Close enough. Uh, Lana's a PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. She earned a master's from MIT Comparative Media Studies in 2009. So we have the return of the Jedi here, uh, with a thesis on fake luxury fashion, which was a wonderful thesis. Uh, to the left is uh, Jennifer Holt, who is the assistant professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where she specializes in the study of media industries and regulatory policy. She's the author of Empires of Entertainment, which is forthcoming, and co-editor of Media Industries History Theory Method. And way to the left is Goran Bolin, who is a professor in Media and Communication Studies at Södertörn University, Stockholm, where his work spans audience research and media ethnography to production studies. So why don't we just start out with uh, past comments and observations, and we'll move left. Thank you. Okay, good of you to still be here, as, as we were saying earlier. I, I mean, I, I need usually time to digest so much material, and uh, I've reviewed this conference last time in, in Convergence, and I hope to do the same with, with my student for, for this one. So I'll be condensing some ideas in that for later. So to try and see where are some of the highlights, I'll just give you some of my curate's eggs and some points that I found interesting. Uh, William sort of talked earlier about I think on Friday, about the object of media still a tainted object, uh, media studies. And where I come from in Ireland and in the UK, it's really tainted. Uh, there are a lot of pressures on media studies as a discipline. So I think it's an area that sort of uh, I'm interested in seeing how that develops and where it is going as it, as it moves into new media. Um, uh, remember how unsettled and confused and a transformational phase comes up all the times in this uh, median transition. Uh, and that sort of, for me, is problematic in some ways because it makes it very hard to tie down a lot of the, the panels because there's so much 
going on, it's very hard to see uh, trends or, or comparisons. There, uh, you know, unlike I found with the uh, the last one in 2009, uh, I found I could handle it because it was archives. It was, it was quite easy. So I think that'll be more challenging, but I'm sure we'll come up with some sort of things. I, I've gone to a lot of the narrative panels, and I found them very interesting. Uh, uh, and one one can, one person said that narrative is a is a mental scheme and will survive. Uh, I should hope so. Um, there are debates, obviously, between old and new media on, on debates between narratology and ludology and where is new media fitting into, and those debates go on and have gone on in, in, in the papers. Um, some very interesting stuff on journalism and public service broadcasting and how new media makes it no longer geographically located. I found that quite interesting. Um, uh, again, I have to sort of really congratulate William for really hitting the nail on the head. As, as a, an associate dean for research, we have a big job in trying to promote research, and, and I think I would agree with him when he says we need more radical proselytizers for our humanities work. Uh, we need ways of trying to uh, sort of make our, our research translatable into the real world, and, and sometimes uh, when you read some papers, you feel, what in God's name has this got to do with anything? Uh, but finding ways of making it translatable, I, th- I think, is a big agenda that we all have to be involved in in some way. A uh, lot of commentary on Twitter. On Twitter, I don't use it. It's, this new technology just accelerates our sense of the fracturing. Uh, again, that's a sort of a, a big motif that sort of has been there since the postmodern movement. So, is 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 Twitter quite? important in that. I, I, again, I've made a comment on the, on the last uh, sort of um, conference that, and I've been very controversial here, there's, there's a danger with American academics that you are very American-centric, and it is very good to hear other voices from Brazil, from India, from uh, Italy, uh, from Ireland, from, from other sort of places, because I think uh, a lot of the time it helps to just get some comparative register going. Uh, and not seeing being myopic and just seeing uh, sort of so I, I just was interested in a Brazilian um, commentary about uh, the, where audiences are allegedly confused about interactivity. Uh, I, I mean the, the concept of interactivity uh, I think is a big big agenda that we talk about in new media a lot. Uh, technology outstripping how to use modes of spectatorship. Again, this debate goes on all the time. Is the technology driving, informing, or leading uh, modes of spectatorship, modes of, of industry, of technology, etc. So that is an issue. I was at an interesting uh, one on web episodes, uh, a lack of coherent business model. Again, a lot of the new media are, are really fishing to try and see how, whether they will get legs or not. So uh, the industries are very interesting. The media industries are always interested in the new media because they want to see what's the next best thing. So in the academy, we have the job of trying to sort of road test some of these models as well. So I, I thought it was an interesting piece on web webisodes. Um, yet we go back, I'm, I'm more, more of a film person myself. It was an interesting paper on the film strip. And uh, one... Uh, one uh, academic uh, from my part of the world who really mourned the loss of the analog film, uh, like I do sometimes as well. Uh, and the sort of, uh, as, a, as an erstwhile photographer, I still want the smell of the dark room 
which I miss enormously with, with digital technology. So there's this nostalgia that's sort of endlessly played up. And in my own work, there's both the sort of the uh, hyper digital sort of aesthetic, but then there's this retro steampunk sort of there's different strands happening that are quite, I think are quite interesting and we need to take them on board. Um, uh, just today, just this, this, uh, this morning, uh, an interesting debate around the blog and can it teach new forms of literature? Is it creating new ways of expressing uh, a new form? I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, I can go on for ages, but if you want to just move on and then I can come back. When you come back, yeah. uh, you have more, you have several more chances. Uh, Lana? Uh, well, uh, just to kind of frame this a little bit, William mentioned that um, my interest in money as a socio-technical, cultural, any number of those words you want to combine into a neologism. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm still a PhD student, uh, which I'm going to, <laughs> to pick. As, as a cultural form um, is a somewhat underrepresented uh, topic at the conference this year. And it was of particular interest to me. Um, I think it's far too unimportant topic to be left to the economists or to the people in the business school. And uh, money has been called... Uh, one of the greatest forms of mass media, and I think it has also, you know, gone the route of mass media in that it has been radically reconfigured. So uh, William asked me to uh, to kind of weave in some of my own perspectives um, along with these these reflections. So that's that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so the title of this conference had to do with has to do with unstable platforms. And as I was watching various panels this week, it occurred to me that people were deploying a variety of usages of the word platform. Some adhered to the Montfortian slash Bogostian um, idea of a computational system upon which further computation can be developed. Some, at the other end of the, the specificity spectrum, um, I think seemed to look at it more of a conference title and figured out a way to work the word platform into their abstract. But I think the vast majority, myself included, were somewhere in the middle. Um, for us, the word platform was more than a metaphor, but was sort of an oblique strategy or a creative obstruction to highlight certain aspects of, of our ongoing interests and product projects, and I think one that was quite fecund in many cases. Um, for me, it was very interesting and very productive to think about money, not just as a media form, but as a platform. Um, as I mentioned, and if any of you saw my presentation, uh, gold has the interesting uh, affordances of being highly divisible, highly portable, and at least in Europe, at the time that it, it took hold as a, as a main form, highly rare. So as a platform, gold kind of makes sense as a form of money. Um, print money uh, as, as a platform shared with other print technologies the properties of nation building, of creating the imagined community of the nation state. Uh, it, it, it instantiated shared ideological images. Um, and as I mentioned, that mass media has been reconfigured. Money has, like other media forms and platforms, has become networked and dematerialized. Um, the, the scales that it produces, both spatial and temporal, have been renegotiated. Money has also become mobile. 
it has jumped off our one device, the credit card of networked distribution, uh, and is moving on to another, uh, leaving our wallet and getting onto our cell phone. Um, and I think that the most, so leaving my own work behind for a moment, I think that the most fecund work that I saw really attended to the specificity of platforms, whatever degree of, uh, of metaphoricity they chose to deploy that word with. Um, this included the social specificity. Uh, the, the most interesting and exciting papers I saw were rooted in the particular fact um, and or very much in sorry in the particular um, i I was very excited by papers that explicitly told me, for example, which corner of the internet they were talking about, even as they attended to the specific network protocols that are are prevalent across the internet um, but that is not to say that the social is in any way a dichotomy with the technological um, people and communities develop and innovate technologies for particular reasons in particular contexts. In my own work, I've seen this, uh, I've been really interested in following the work of sociologist Viviana Zelizer, who has looked at the way people create new forms of money for new purposes. For example, food stamps are, to Zelizer, a form of currency that enables the poor to know exactly their place and also limits the circulation of where their money can go. Um, but we also limit uh, new forms. Uh, private currencies had to, according to Zelizer, had to truly be taxed out of existence in order for those national print currencies to emerge. Um, but also, as Zelizer points out, we use standard money the, as a platform in a variety of different social ways. Stolen money, gifted money, earned money, found money all behave and circulate in different ways. We pay our therapists to limit intimacy, but we stop taking money from our parents at a certain point to find new freedom. Sometimes these uses are physically earmarked, um, stored and budgeted in unique ways, and that in turn creates new technologies, which of course leads us back to the technological specificity. Some of the, the most exciting papers I found also attended as much to the particular in the social, but also to the particular in the technological. Uh, it is important to remember that we think of the actual technological affordances when we talk about platforms. For example, WikiLeaks is not a wiki, as someone pointed out on the Twitter a couple of times throughout the, uh, the, the conference. It is necessary, absolutely necessary, but I don't think quite sufficient simply to know that we are being surveilled and, and that our, all of our data is being monetized by the social graph. I think that it is important to know how, technologically, that is occurring. Um, and I, I think that this is also true with, with money, clearly. There is a widening gap between those we call financial wizards on Wall Street and those of us who feel only fear and shame about learning our credit score, uh, let alone trying to truly understand how it is calculated. Um, this can be daunting as much as Nick Montfort truly encouraged me and other members of my cohort to become humanistic readers of code at the base level. Uh, it is not always something that those of us, including myself, who come from a humanities background have really taken up. Um, but I think that, that whether or not we choose to ultimately write in that register, it is important to know. 
Um, because I think the less we truly understand about the way that these platforms are constructed and deployed, um, the more they may appear far more or less stable than they are. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer? Okay. I just took this opportunity to think about what I saw and think about a few different interrelated themes and how they might, the, the panels that I saw might um, exemplify these different themes. Um, and this assignment, if you want to call it that, of being on this panel, became very overwhelming when you realize you are only one person and you want to go to everything because there are so many amazing panels to um, to be on and I just went to as many as I could and but I was happy not to see you guys in <laughs> a lot of them because then I figured well we'll be re reporting on different um, different panels um, one of the first themes that I really enjoyed um, recognizing in these across a lot of the different panels was the role of history um, and the kind of the nature and the dimensions and the degree of instability and change um, might be fluctuating but the fact that you know the existence of it does not and a lot of these papers kept reminding us you know to take the long view as Jason Rohde said in the early forum, um, and to remember that change and transition and instability is, is not new. And I was really happy to see how many times we were specifically reminded of that. So a couple of my favorite examples, um, uh, one was by, a paper by Matt Bernius on Cronkite 2.0, where he um, kind of read the assassination, the reporting of the assassination of JFK and the reporting of the shooting of Gabrielle Giffords via the lens of Walter Cronkite and Twitter, really, um, and talked about how we authenticate knowledge in these different eras and um, could Walter Cronkite even survive as an icon in this present day? And I was just happy to kind of see the role of history involved in this discussion by him, and he did it really well. Um, another, paper, another aspect was just the archivists talking about, well, what exactly what was your data created on? And I think you pointed out that, you know, um, well, it might have been on a Commodore 64, but there were multiple versions of that, and so which one was it? And the ways in which we think about information and the importance of historicizing how it was created. Um, another pan paper on this topic that I really liked was Randy Nichols, who talked about the political economy of the game console and of kind of hardware, the history of hardware and its evolution. And he talked a lot about how political economy is often used mostly to, it's not just productive for studying the entrenchment of power, but it's also useful for looking at upheaval and how change can erode stability. And um, the ways in which he kind of incorporated that into his look of the evolution of the game console, I thought was really productive for um, keeping us grounded, right? And not freaking out over this moment of change, but this is what media industries have been dealing with 
all along, and it's just a matter of how we're going to adapt. And I think that's really what we're all talking about here in many ways, is how are all of these different um, aspects of media adapting to this change, um, not this is... This is brand new. So in addition to um, history, and I saw some uh, a panel this morning on, um, I want to get the title right. Um, I'm unstable, I'm sorry. <laughs> the a Publishing in Transition, um, and two Austrian scholars, Hanno Bieber and Evelyn Breitenender, um, presented a really incredible incredible research about the process of transforming digital into print and the kind of importance of historical memory and all of that. So in addition to the role of history, the, the discourses of empowerment are something else I saw as um, a consistent thread in these discussions of unstable platforms and the ways in which empowerment was mobilized. So obviously we had a forum yesterday and Sandra Brayman's comments about using critical legal discourse and the nature of power as it has evolved in the digital environment were, and, and, and the rest of the comments on the panel were obviously um, a big part of that, but also Sandra's paper on um, her talk about early internet protocols and her discussion of methodology and in looking at um, the internet RFCs, request for comment and all of those documents in, and how she found um, really, a, a, really looking at it as a way for these early architects of the internet thinking about how to empower future users, which I thought was really, really fascinating, and just the amount of data so we can learn about like these discourses of empowerment, not just in the text itself, but in research methodology. I thought was really fascinating, um, and also Chuck Tryon's paper on the panel I was on. Um, I thought was really interesting for the ways in which it mobilized these discourses and talking about the transition of the TV screen itself to become more mobile um, and the ways in which mobility is being um, promoted and presented as giving you freedom and the ways in which um, as you move a screen, you're going to also have to be moving your content um, and so you need to own that content. And so ownership becomes something promoted to you as empowering, ownership of content. Um, Nina Hunterman also talked about, in her presentation on games, she talked about the labor of um, playtesters and the ways in which uh, you know, their, their work is being promoted to them in many ways as something empowering, but really it's just more exploitative than anything else. So um, the ways in which empowerment is used during these times of transition and instability and the ways it's flipped. I mentioned in my panel that when we're told by media companies um, that you know, we're giving you freedom, I tell them to substitute the word prison in there instead. So how are, how are these companies imprisoning you? How are they imprisoning their data in some way? And I saw a lot of that being discussed overtly and, and not overtly in these, in these comments and in these papers. I thought that was great. And then the last thread that I'll just bring up briefly is um, the thread of infrastructures of change. Um, and, 
you know, the ways in which the, the platforms and the distribution networks, the technologies, and the corporate architectures are implicated in this change. So, you know, even just what Lana brought up, how our data is being monetized by the social graph, the, how that infrastructure is in operation. And a, a couple examples that I will bring up are one is the, the journalists that spoke in the first forum. Um, and talking about business models and the adaptation of business models and corporate practice and the importance or the kind of lack of importance placed on deregulation in the media industries right now. I, I don't think we have really learned anything from um, 2008. Uh, it gave me a great conclusion to my book, but I think that's all it's given us other than a lot of um, heartache and a lot of, um, you know, corporations operating with licenses to um, print money in many ways where, with very little oversight. So I think their discussion of business models was um, very telling about these infrastructures of change and the way that the archivists talk about infrastructures and the importance of the database and how data is constructed and contained and often connected to corporate platforms. And so Twitter be, being a certain infrastructure of this change and our complaint throughout this conference of how it's no longer archiving its stream and it's no longer allowing Twapper Keeper and these kind of things. Well, this has a huge impact on um, the content that we'll receive. And the ways in which the, both of these conversations of the journalists and the archivists related to issues of access during and after, access to information during and after this transition. Um, lastly, one last thing I'll, I'll talk about quickly is um, a, panel I, a paper I saw this morning by Kathleen Fitzpatrick on um, the conflicts between platforms and content providers in the publishing industry and questions about sustainability of existing sales structures in the new environment. Um, and she talked about two different case studies, but I thought it was very insightful way to get at these infrastructures of change and what will be, um, it kind of made me think that you're talking about new topics for new conferences. That one seemed to be a, a big one that rang out for me while thinking about how to process all of these um, great papers throughout the last few days. That that one seemed to, to be a pretty salient theme for me. So I'll Gorn. end there. And... Under Gorn. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, uh, I want to thank the organizers first for, for um, having me on this panel. This is my fourth uh, uh, Media and Transition conference, and, and what I'm saying is uh, should be read against that fact also. Uh, but this is, as the previous accounts, also my personal trajectory through this, this conference. So I have two points of observation that I want to share. And, and the first one is that connects a bit to what has been said previously, that there are, there are several panels on, on commerce and economy in, in the broader sense of, of economy, not only on money, <laughs> but, but, but on more uh, economy in a more general sense, the like economy, for example. Not always in terms of traditional critical political economy, but, but clear presence of economic perspectives in, in these various economies. Uh, so you, and you can, can also connect this to the discussion on power that we had in the panel yesterday afternoon. 
uh, as economic power, of course, is, is uh, one of the major fields of power in society. And maybe this is also um, a, uh, an answer to the request from David Thorburn yesterday on, on the darker side of, of, of technological development and, and, uh, and uh, organizational development in, in relation to this technological development. So, but a, a, a thing that I, to me, uh, appears looking in retrospect uh, to the previous conferences that, that there has been a gradual shift or um, a shift in weight, you could say, from phenomenologically inspired perspectives on users, uh, taking the user's perspective, fan studies, for example, to more structural perspectives. Uh, and uh, naturally, the this isn't uh, some sort of um, exchange, but 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 uh, a, a growing rise. Many of the panels I went to had had more uh, sort of uh, structural perspectives. So um, the f focus on creativity of, of media has, has been um, less pronounced, I would say, this year. Uh, and there's a clearer balance between these phenomenological perspectives and the structural perspectives perspectives. And uh, one thing that I'd like to see more of, uh, just out of sheer personal interest, uh, because that's what I tried to do in my presentation on, on Friday, uh, are attempts at, at bridging these, uh, these perspectives to, to integrate phenomenological perspectives, processes of meaning making, for example, with structural perspectives of appropriation, domination, etc. And try to understand how how the media culture industries commodify these processes of empowerment and this appropriation of creativity, of sociality, etc. Because, of course, users are active if you take the phenomenological perspectives. There's no denying that, and, and um, there's never been that denial from the part of the um, industry. Uh, but, uh, but this activity and these uh, active audiences are t today appropriated by the industries and monetized. So the media industry has, have never argued that media users are passive. I mean, this is, I, I think we should blame ourselves here. I mean, this uh, passivity has, has been ascribed audiences more from, from media researchers than from, from media industry, I think. But we might debate this. Some, someone might argue with me on that. I will. You will, yeah, yeah, okay. So let us come back to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but but uh, this is, I mean, today when, when business models build on traffic, commodity, etc., this is, of course, a very, um, uh, a, a question that is, is quite central, uh, at least to my interests. And, of course, it's, this is nothing new. We can go back to the Frankfurt School, to Horkheimer and Adorno, to, to, uh, to see uh, sort of these questions posed for the, for the last time. And, and, and what I would try to, well, go beyond with, with what I'm saying, with this integration of, of phenomenological perspectives with uh, structural perspectives, are also these sort of polarizations. We used to think about the cultural industry essay as, a, a, uh, as just such an uh, essay that ascribes passivity to audiences. But if we remember with me the, the last sentence of the cultural industry essays, where they say, I cite, 
and I quote, the triumph of advertising in the culture industry is that consumers feel compelled to buy and use its products even though they see through them. So this is uh, indeed a more complicated view upon uh, audience activity and the role of uh, the relation between industry and audiences than is usually acknowledged and admitted to uh, Horkheimer and Adorno. So how, how can we understand this willingness to be exploited on part of media users, uh, the commodification of the life world, if, if you will, if we speak with Habermas? Uh, so, and if we could say that something has happened to the cultural object in the age of mechanical reproduction in line with Benjamin under capitalism, something uh, also certainly happens with the, the uh, uh, cultural object and the subjects that engage in these cultural objects in the age of digital reproduction and distribution or retweeting. Um, uh, indeed, something does happen to communication as such in conferences like this when, when we sort of multitask with uh, tweets and we uh, also, probably more people than I have, have thought while preparing for what they are going to say in terms of catchphrases that fit into this format. Uh, so uh, uh, will this be tweeted? Will this formulation make it on Twitter? Well, we will see in a couple of seconds if, it, <laughs> if you have, uh, if it has. I mean, communicative performance as judged against degrees of Twitterability. That's 72 characters with spaces. Uh, so, and, uh, of, well, this is sort of a parenthesis of what I'm going to say, but, but uh, we also, there's also something in, in, uh, fascinating in the group dynamics in, uh, activated by communication tools like, such as Twitter, etc. But uh, to end this, uh, what I'm arguing is not that we should abandon sort of phenomenological perspectives to the benefit of, of uh, structural perspectives, but, but try to merge them and integrate them and think them together uh, as in an inseparable combination that is at the heart of, of contemporary media environments. So that was one point. I have a second point, if I'm allowed to, to go on, which is much shorter. Um, uh, I'm, I was... Um, when I listened to the, the, the lunch panel, or the panel before lunch yesterday, on, on archiving cultural memory, I, I, I missed the, the question that was posed in the, in the program, on, uh, the forgetting part in, in, in the archival, archiving and cultural memory panel. And uh, maybe this is because I know far less about this subject than I do about media industries. But we have, have heard uh, over the con conference uh, several panels uh, with very interesting papers about technologies for preservation and uh, the obstacles we face when we, we, we try to, to, um, to save texts for, for the future uh, and uh, save also the production processes behind them. Uh, but, uh, that, but you could say that we also live in an age where we have a, an obsessive will to documentation. Think of everything we do at universities, that we have to document our st students' results, and not only the results, we, we, we also have to assess our, the processes behind these results, etc. So that this is what you could say is an administrative logic of, of ordering uh, through solving problems with metadata, etc. And well, this is all fine. We have 
always done this. I mean, this is what, what historians have as their empiric data. But, but I m miss the discussion on, on forgetting uh, the, um, quote, do we need to consider how to bet be better at, as a culture at forgetting, uh, end quote. Uh, so this is not only the flip side to, to the question of, of what is, quote, culturally important materials, unquote, uh, in which we, uh, which is a formulation that presupposes that there are, are less significant materials. Uh, but I think what, what I missed was the normative dimension of that discussion, because, because uh, if, if we are to forget something, we need to have this for, uh, normative discussion of what, what is uh, the, the, the right things to forget and the right things to preserve, etc. So that's the, the, the flip, flip side of this. I mean, if we take on the individual level, it's quite easy to see that there are things that we do not want to preserve. Uh, any of you in the audience who have children, uh, and especially the, have children in, in, in a daycare center or in school, you will uh, remember, uh, uh, recognize this example. I have five children, so I know this very, very uh, through experience quite well. At the end of the, the uh, year, this is in a few weeks, uh, when, when they close for the summer holidays, you will, be, as a parent, be presented with a bag of drawings, uh, unsorted. And then you, you, you cannot be that evil parent to throw, say, oh, well, throw, the, throw it all away. <laughs> so, so you put it in the corner of your room and then you sort it eventually and you save a couple of them and throw the rest away. Uh, because, you don't, because daycare centers are factories of cultural production, you could say. Uh, but it's not uh, some sort of cultural production that we necessarily want to preserve uh, because we want to, uh, to have our children grow, grow up as, as skilled uh, with aesthetic uh, capabilities, etc., and uh, social cultural capabilities. We don't necessarily need to know the processes uh, behind those those uh, skills. And if you extend this to the cultural level, you, we, we could have a discussion on what is worth preserving and what is worth forgetting in line with what Paul Ricoeur uh, has discussed. And again, admittedly, this is a discussion that is not my special field of interest, but with the one that I find fascinating. Things, what, what are the things that we do not want to have documented? I mean, Again, on the individual level, for there we have private moments, childbirth, love, etc., et moments that we do not really want to have documented as such uh, because uh, representation is, is uh, insufficient for those experiences. So I'd rather uh, that these experiences die with me <laughs> than try to represent them in, in some form that, that would do them injustice. So, can we find those corresponding cultural moments is, is the question that I would like to leave for the panel and for the audience. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, I think that's uh, a wonderful uh, variety of positives and some negatives. Uh, and I think we have 45 minutes left here. So... What makes sense is to uh, offer the audience an opportunity to make some commentary of its own. And then I'd like to use the last uh, half hour to think a little bit about the uh, next conference. 
and any other thoughts about uh, where we might possibly go for MIT uh, 7, uh, 8, I'm sorry. Uh, so why don't I just open it up to the audience here, and uh, if you have comments similar to the panel, uh, reflexive, uh, reflections on the conference, uh, please uh, come and offer them to us, and then uh, we will talk about uh, the next uh, episode. Hello. So thank you for um, trying to connect the dots uh, of disparate um, conferences that were experienced phenomenologically just because of the position of us ourselves as observers. So this is from my position, what I was able to observe. And I, I, um, in addition to the dots you've connected, I just want to add something to um, what uh, Lana said, which is the category of media itself and how narrowly or broadly we define this category. Uh, and I don't think this conference is uh, unusual from other media studies conferences that I've been at in various countries. I'm from Canada, either within Canada or internationally. We still tend to define it more narrowly and more in presentist forms and, and more about current industry uh, agendas or policy objectives, etc., etc. Uh, so money as a medium figured in yours, but uh, there was another panel, uh, not coincidentally by Canadians, following in the footsteps of McLuhan, who wrote about money as a medium. And uh, so that would be uh, something I think we should pay more attention to. Um, the other is uh, something that may be more unique to this conference, is, which is how we conceptualize media change. Go back to this theme of transformation, change. And one word that comes up often is, uh, this is part of these changes can be described as uh, part of an evolution, the term evolution here. And um, here I'm drawing on some work by Jody Berland, who did uh, some writing about this from a humanities perspective. And so this was at the moment of the first, uh, the birth of the, the internet, the World Wide Web, the moment, the first phase of uh, enthusiasm and so on, techno, high, high uh, techno optimism, um, which is um, technological changes described, referred to as evolutionary, which then mixes biological change with technological change. And she tries to pull these apart but I think in and how we refer uh, in casual conversation, but even in, in papers, we earmark uh, change as evolutionary. Um, and so that's one thing, the, the concept of evolution. Can you, can you go from, from biological evolutionary narratives or discourses to the technological level to then the so social? So the, that notion. The other one related maybe in terms of change is the question of the dialectic. So here you bring in kind of approaches to history and historical materialism, cultural materialism. Now I think we're seeing technological materialism through various thinkers and authors. And um, this for me raises the question, well, the dialectic used to lead to a synthesis. Um, and we try to present papers in which there's a synthesis uh, 
we come to a conclusion about some kind of synthesis, some kind of unity, a balance, a new reconfiguration, so on. But would we be now uh, having to ask ourselves uh, if we're in some kind of change that does not lead to synthesis? In other words, so we may speak of tendencies, and I think the things I would like to see us think more together about is, is to think together about the tendency and the counter-tendency, the centripetal, centripetal forces and the centrifugal forces, and there are various other versions of this, because they are, uh, in, in terms of power, a practice, an object, a text may be <coughs> empowering or disempowering simultaneously. But we try to go, we try to find the one or the other. So does this lead to a synthesis, or are we now having kind of changes uh, that are neither evolutionary, in terms of our, like, the level of species being, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe we should yeah. uh, focus a little more on uh, questions uh, because oh. uh, we're fast losing sure. our audience and we want to have sure. a few minutes left for sure. was, discussion. Okay. Of, uh, uh, or whether we can have change without any okay. kind of synthesis. Sorry. Um, next question. Okay, so this isn't kind of so much of the question, but actually a response to the, uh, the challenge. of. Uh, and, and, uh, and I actually really liked your point about the uh, the kind of the difference between the phenomenological experience of the user and on the on, on on the one hand that kind of research trajectory and then on the other hand this kind of structural or infrastructural approach that you said was kind of coming more more along and I don't think that the two are that incompatible and I actually think your challenge about whether or not you can fit a response to that in a tweet is itself an example of kind of how we can have that kind of hybrid way this idea that our kind of, I mean, we all know that kind of our experiences, our phenomenological experience of the world, my experience of this conference is mediated differently as someone who's an active Twitter, as it is to someone who's not. And so I think that's just, that's just and that's kind of what I said in my tweet, which is that, yes, <laughs> that's a great example of how these two perspectives have to come together. Okay, can, can I actually add to that, to Stu's point um, a bit? And I, I feel like among my PhD, my current PhD cohort, all 120 of us, well, not the cohort, but the current, whatever, you know, everybody, um, which is actually quite diverse, particularly uh, compared to my PhD, or my CMS cohort in some ways. We have uh, a variety of perspectives, people who would probably identify as being more interested in political economy, people who identify as being more interested in cultural studies, people who... Um, who are in policy and in health comm and, and pretty widely dispersed across communication and media. Um, but one thing that I've really begun to notice um, about my generation, so to speak, is that we don't feel, or if I, if I may speak for us, that this need to say either we're cultural studies or we're political economy, either we're optimistic or we're pessimistic, either we're interested in structures or we're interested in agency, and we're sort of wanting to ask why and how and when. Instead, and, and, it, and I think that this is not so much a conference injunction, but like a disciplinary and academic injunction to kind of ask you all to think about ways for us to continue our trajectories and open up slots for us to have careers that ask us, that'll allow us to push past, I think, those false dichotomies and, and work out ways that they can be compatible and that we can be optimistic and pessimistic when we're optimistic when we have things to be optimistic about or pessimistic about, and ask in the same dissertation, write about political economy and write about the more phenomenological approaches. Assistant professor of why. That'd be great. And how. And no job. Yeah, <laughs> also why how. how. Yeah. That'd be great. Yes. 
Oh, you were just standing there? I, I was just standing there, but if I was going to make a comment <laughs> or on this stuff, it would be, uh, you know, like, we're talking about, does this fit into this category or a problem of a category? And it seems to me that the fundamental thing for all this is the breakdown of traditional categories, and that's really the kind of friction to our understanding of what's going on. So I, I was wondering if there was any comment on that or I think this conference is a great example of breaking down a lot of categories. That's why I like to come to this conference, because it's so much more interesting to me, and I learn so much more than traditional media conferences where the conversations are all about one particular media or limited forms of media. Um, I, I really learn so much more when it's interdisciplinary like this and multidisciplinary. So I think the way that the or- conference has been organized is helps me. Brilliant. Yeah, can mm-hmm. I can I add, add to that? I also think that this is. Um, uh, I also learn tremendous lots when I uh, uh, go home from these conferences, uh, and I think one of the. Um, uh, things that makes me learn so much is, is the the uh, mix of, of junior and senior scholars that and the. Uh, the friendly atmosphere, because that's not the, <laughs> the case in all conferences, that where you have sort of more hierarchical structures. Uh, uh, because, frankly, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I'm just a lurker on on, on Twitter, so, <laughs> so I don't tweet myself. Uh, but I follow. For, but I, uh, but I'm sort of. It's conjunctive. What what would it be if I were to make a, a, a Twitter a tweet? Uh, so um, yeah, but 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 I think I think that's one of the uh, sort of clues to to the success of these conferences. Can I just? I, I yes. totally agree with that. But if I want to be negative and add a writer as a, as an associate dean for research to get funding on our side of the world anyway, one has to be absolutely expert in a particular area mm-hmm. and very much evidence that to actually be accepted to actually get funding. So the danger of cross-disciplinary is you're a master. You're sort of trading across so many fields, and you never become an expert in any. So even for PhD students, if you want to get tenure, you you have to sort of go down deep into one area. And it's it's a problem with our field that it is encouraging cross-disciplinarity, and we need it to actually legitimate the area. But we need to be careful of... The, 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 the sort of the categories are there because that's where fun, funding drives that, and so, so you, you just need to be very aware of that. I would argue. Mm-hmm. I would I would certainly comment on that too, just from my perspective, uh, administration and working with faculties over many years. Uh, the, the the discipline and the field uh, there is a great deal of argument around these at uh, promotion times, at evaluation times, and so. Media studies has a glorious range of uh, disciplines. Uh, when we advertise a position, it's, it's amazing the, the different fields uh, of the applicants. And you look at it and you, you sort of uh, see this as an incredible strength. But when you go back inside the academy, uh, even a place like MIT, which uh, has this huge narrative of uh, valorizing interdisciplinarity, uh, it, there, there are certain types that are better than other types. And so uh, I think media studies programs, uh, certainly as we've experienced here, uh, are, it's a big challenge for them to create concepts of authenticity that are respected across other fields. And, uh, I mean, it's just a fact, and it's something that uh, 
I agree. Uh, we have to we have to be aware of. Yes. I'd like to go back to the to the uh, back to the issue of remembering and forgetting mm -hmm. and and look at it from perhaps an ecological perspective and. Uh, if you equip, instead of thinking of, of money as, as a medium, thinking about it as a form of energy, mm. when you put money in, you have energy to do things. And if you look at where we're doing things right now and taking all these, these, these systems we have to support our communication, in the cloud, we keep putting all this information up into the cloud. And I think Facebook, every day, people put 100 million photos up into the, up into the cloud instead of going into the closet. And you consider the fact that uh, about, I think at this point, 2.5% of the, the country's energy is used in, in, in just maintaining servers. Another 2.5% is used to cool the service. That's 5% of the country's energy is going into holding our memory. And there's a growth of 12% per year. So there's going to probably be some limitations in terms of what we can actually remember in the future. And maybe, in, maybe for the next MIT-8, we might something to consider is that the, the actual phys physical limitations of memory. I mean, this is one of the things that the computer scientists don't think about at all in terms of the programs they, they build. They, you turn the computer on, you have infinite energy, you run your programs, but we are, we are computers and we have to live off energy ourselves and we just haven't thought about that I think, in terms of how we're offloading everything into these other systems uh, and we're paying the price in, in the form of energy. So that will be limitations eventually is what we can preserve. I think that's very interesting. And if I just might add, I think computer scientists actually are quite aware of space limitations and like developers and people who, who make things have to run on specific uh, platforms. And I think that rather than see that as a counterpoint to your point, I think it, we might learn something from those practices. And that might be a, an, an interesting area of research. So... Can I just go back to what you were, mm -hmm. were saying about an administration and the expansiveness of disciplines? And I think this notion of instability that we've been discussing all weekend, in the very beginning of the conference, um, I remember Kathleen Fitzpatrick saying something about how it goes also back to education, right? And this is transforming the way that we educate and transforming um, the way that we teach but it also has to, we have to be shaking up what is accepted by administrators and the way that administrators view our expertise and the way administrators view our output. And this seems to me kind of like the, I don't know, the eternal struggle, right, between scholars and the way administrators view creative work, and especially in media studies, some, some universities allow creative work to be considered for promotion and tenure, and some don't, depending on, you know, what the emphasis in, is in your department. And I just feel like this, people who come to this type of conference are the best agitators for change in that area. And um, it will never change how, how expansive we allow our, you know, work to be interpreted it, unless we're the people who are arguing for that. I, I totally agree. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's up to people who are working in programs, uh, media studies programs, to uh, come up with the strategies for dealing with that. Universities can change and do change, but uh, they're conservative bodies, too, because they're uh, con conserving inf uh, 
knowledge, there's a tradition of uh, preservation. And, uh, you know, preservation has a kind of a, uh, a frozen quality to it, uh, one aspect of it anyway, and that is fixing it and, and making sure that it uh, has a, uh, uh, a certain validity. And so this is a, this is a constant argument. But I, I, personally, I think it's, a, it's an exhilarating mm-hmm. uh, argument, too. It's, a, it's an interesting project to think about uh, coming up with new structures for the academy and for dealing with reform of the, uh, the academy and for presenting some of these movements as uh, reform movements, uh, efforts to get in touch with uh, contemporary trends and, and uh, uh, you know, profound uh, developments. So, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's a lot, it's never going to, it's never going to end, but uh, I think as uh, departments develop uh, strength and they develop the kinds of interactions and communications, uh, not only uh, in, 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 the, in one country or another, but across, uh, uh, across many countries, uh, uh, and they develop funding, pro- uh, uh, funded research uh, programs that support uh, students. Uh, I think uh, I think we have a very strong hand. It's just it's got to be played, and it's got to be pr- uh, played carefully. Uh, so, what about thoughts for future conferences? <laughs> Themes. Silence. How about silence? Yeah, actually, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to synthesize that. Uh, do you want to say uh, in in a couple of sentences? Um, here, it, it appears that there's an environment of media perspective yeah. with exploration of different aspects. Yeah. I, yeah, panel, any thoughts? I mean, media ecologies and, and the integration of various forms of media is, uh, I think, very much on everyone's mind. And the question is how to do that. Uh, is there a systematic approach to it? It seems right now that it's uh, sort of an ad hoc approach. Uh, you happen to have a cultural anthropologist in the room, and you get a computer scientist, and you say, can you guys talk together? What does that uh, you know dialogue consist of? What are the terminologies? Uh, but there are probably much more uh, organized ways to think about this set of uh, this this question because obviously media are determined by a, a, a vast array uh, array of uh, technologies and social socialization processes and so forth and. So part of the problem is just the, the, the spectrum of the field is, is so imposing and, and difficult to control. 
But uh, maybe somebody knows a little more about media ecology. And uh, I know the Berkman Center is working in this area a bit. Uh, and, you know, there are some publications in the subject. If anybody has some thoughts on this, please add. I think also what you're bringing up is the difficulty of um, articulating methodologies for interdisciplinary work. And it brings up a great question, you know, for how, how, how do you do this type of work? How do you find you can put them in the same room, right? But how do you actually speak one another's language or how do you produce an outcome? And what is the method that you're going to do when you have people coming from all these different traditions? And so I think more focused attention on methodology would be a really outstanding and interesting, at least, panel. <laughs> I, you if, know, if I were going to make one comment, that was going to be my comment, is uh, I went to a, uh, an amazing range of topics and sessions, but I heard very little in the presentations I went to on what the actual methodology was. Um, now, I, I sat back and I thought about that a little bit, and I thought, well, maybe methodology is a kind of maturation process that would be undesirable because it would sort of uh, mire people down into uh, specific uh, steps and so forth, and we would get focused on methodological issues, and we could get lost in that, that set of questions. On the other hand, uh, there seemed to be a kind of... Uh, uh, in, in some of the, in some of the uh, presentations, I saw a, a sort of uh, assumption that everyone knew what the methodology happened mm-hmm. to be. And mm-hmm. some of these uh, presentations were, uh, you know, had uh, incredible historicism and historical approaches and so forth. And yet uh, almost no uh, self-conscious articulation of uh, what the methodology underlying the uh, investigation was. So that was my, uh, that was my mm-hmm. thought on the conference is uh, maybe, again, methodology can be a pain in the ass and, you know, it can really be boring and so forth. So I'm, I'm not uh, a huge uh, advocate of uh, getting bogged down into these questions. But I do think they're worth thinking about and perhaps a panel or two uh, next time on methodologies would be definitely desirable. Yes? Well, and, and narrative is a very powerful, I mean, maybe not a methodology as such, but it's a very powerful way of bringing together human experience. And we all connect with narrative in uh, very uh, immediate and powerful ways. And I think a lot of the presentations I went were excellently told. Uh, the element of explaining what happened and how the discovery uh, was fascinating. And maybe that does for part of the methodology. Uh, I guess we have to go back to the line here. Sorry. There is a line. So if it's... I I understand. So we're we're going back to the mic. Okay. Well, actually, 
Jennifer and you, James, you just mentioned one of my three points, methodology and research methods that would be the topic uh, mm -hmm. I'd also like to put an emphasis on, especially also in view of uh, the digitization and media mediation as two research methods themselves. You know, how do they change and how do we apply them? And the new <coughs> relations of qualitative and quantitative methods that are out there. Mm -hmm. So that's worth a thought and, uh, and to put some emphasis on that. And I just want to underline it now, as mm -hmm. you said it already. But there are two more points. One is just a quick look back. There was this uh, feedback. We formerly had uh, um, too many papers have been read. And now this time, in my view, this worked out quite nicely as, as far as the panels I could attend. The papers haven't been read, so that message, you know, that, <laughs> that, that worked out. And I think that's, uh, that's good, especially for the non-native uh, speakers here in this context. But um, and the third point I want to make... Um, um, I often heard the term literacy, mm. literacy being used in many literacies, and there are so many new literacies, all sorts of literacies, and um, of course there are aspects in it, but I'm wondering um, about these enhancements of the use of the term literacies, and I think it's, it's going too stretched out too far, you know, it's, it's, it's an... It's an overemphasis, and it's, we are forgetting about the relations to competencies and skills on the one hand, mm -hmm. and also to phenomena maybe that we better name numeracy or picturacy, mm -hmm. or somehow to, to figure out the relations of these phenomena and not just extend literacy to, to just everything that's, that's out there. Mm -hmm. you know. that's, that's maybe a, one element that could play a role mm -hmm. as well. Thank you. Uh, okay. Um, when I when I when you asked the question of uh, of uh, how to assess this uh, conference, I, uh, a keynote from last year uh, popped into my mind. Uh, and if you're uh, online, Google uh, University and Cyberspace uh, uh, and Communia, and there uh, Bruce Sterling, the science fiction writer, gave a keynote on uh, universities and cyberspace. And he was talking about uh, the metaphor, cyberspace, and its relationship to uh, academia and universities. And I would like to quote him, because uh, what he said there uh, struck me, uh, uh, and I think it's relevant uh, for future topics of this conference. So forgive me for uh, quoting someone else uh, uh, at a greater length. But he said that uh, old metaphors die. They don't live for ages. They die. Nobody cares about mainframes or uh, on the information superhighways. So if you go to your uh, chancellor and say, we want to reshape our university for the information superhighway, you will lose all your funding. Uh, you will be treated as a lunatic. Uh, you will be shown uh, to the door. Old metaphors die, and the information superhighway is not at all. Al Gore, who coined the term, is still a functional political figure. He even has sex scandals. This is how young and vital Al Gore is. But the idea that's that. And if you are going to outlive uh, many of these ideas, many, uh, the network get, that gets reshaped much faster than the knowledge institution can be reshaped. You can't reshape a 900-year-old institution at the shape at which these networks reshape themselves. And they die, and you don't want to die. Now, the cyberspace metaphor is 30 years old. 
you can see how violently it has been reshaped by the passage of time. It's not bad that these, th that these things happen, but you need to understand that these historical formulations are mortal. They are not false. It's not like the information superhighway never existed. It existed. It got federal funding. There were political issues about it, newspaper stories. It's not false. It's just mortal. And you don't want to tie your fate to such mortal things. The universities need to be the places in your society where young people who know very little, young, innocent, ignorant people, are put directly in touch with things that are less mortal than we are. Less mortal than we are, not more <coughs> mortal, mortal than we are. Uh, and and I, I, this message stuck me when I, I heard many of these uh, uh, talks and papers uh, during this conference talking about Twitter and Facebook and, and all those things that I, I believe are more mortal than the issues that we are uh, trying to struggle with. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any last thoughts, suggestions, panel? I have an idea. I mean, how close are we to how much? Uh, we still have 15 minutes. Okay. Well, I had an idea <laughs> that actually uh, an emergent theme from this conference that I thought would be an interesting line to beef up for future. And um, it actually started on the first day where I got up to ask a question, and then I realized that it wasn't really the point of the panel to, like, the question wouldn't have really made sense to ask, so I sat down. Um, but but in, the, the first, in that first plenary, they were... Uh, talking about the way scales, temporal and geographic, had been reconfigured um, by changing technologies and uh, changing communication, and and I wanted to ask what kind, what what kind of culture, what kind of social interaction do, is produced at those scales, and how has that social interaction changed? And that was um, that was evoked again by the urban media uh, panel, which I thought was really interesting, which looked at a. You know, there was a sound designer, a um, group of historians, and a group of, of journalists who were trying to create platforms um, for experiencing spatial and temporal real-life things using, the, using media technology. And um, similarly, Vincent Mazarol in his uh, uh, presentation, talked about uh, layer and other forms of augmented reality browsers and other ways that as we go through our daily lives in the real world, um, we are being surveilled and also being asked to, to engage with media technologies. And it, it occurs to me that it might be interesting to begin to even more pointedly break down the dichotomy between online and offline. And, um, and Yohai Bankler recently talked about uh, that that there haven't been any studies that showed that online sharing contributed to offline sharing, and I guess his next book is about that. And I would just be really interested to see the kinds of cultures that have emerged online and through these kinds of technologies and how they operate offline as well. Excellent. So. Well, I think time, uh, we're at the end, but I, before you leave, I, I, uh, David is Four. in the position. Oh, we have another Okay, one this more. Will be very, very Absolutely. brief. I okay. Promise. But I, I was thinking about this question of methodology, and there seems to be this one space that is between formal methodology and not mentioning methodology, and two things came to mind, and one was a conversation that Pilar La Casa and I were having minutes ago, and the other was Clara Fernandez's presentation yesterday morning, which was people just revealing their everyday 
practices because so many of the humanistic practices are mediated in different ways. Mm-hmm. Sharing which platform you use to share take notes, for example, which was the conversation we were having, or in Clara's case was discussing her use of video game emulators, which wouldn't come up in the course of writing her paper and doesn't really fall under the category of a methodology per se, but has implications for the way that she's doing her work. And it would be interesting to encourage some more writing about that, which is about the everyday academic practices that involve technological tools and ways in which people may be turning tools that were designed for marketing purposes or other reasons toward research ends would be very helpful for me as a researcher and I imagine for others to hear the same. So, thank you. Just a comment there. Uh, one of uh, Henry's interests was always vernacular theory and you know how theory is implied in the behavior and so there are lots of ways uh, some of these questions can be approached uh, creatively that you know, or uh, offer some kind of innovation that is identified with the field. And so, you know, I hope people think about that. Um, before we break, I want to thank David. Uh, David Thorburn is, uh, uh, when I came to MIT, David was here working on television, uh, and there were no p- personal computers, if you can imagine MIT without personal computers. Uh, Together we've seen, you know, wave after wave come in of, you know, little R2-D2s and, you know, deck mates and so on and so forth. Uh, but this conference is really reflects uh, David's long-standing uh, interest in media and his uh, cultivation of resources for media and his very successful collaborations with the people in media. So I just want to thank him and ask you to give a round of hands. <laughs> And I also want to thank William because uh, William is a brilliant theorist. Uh, he's, he's provided uh, organization, he's provided uh, conceptualization, and he's worked uh, very hard to continue the process of uh, CMS. And I think he's uh, done a brilliant job. He's a wonderful commentator here. I think you've all seen. Uh, he simply has uh, uh, an, an incredibly active and fertile mind. And so... I want to thank William for his leadership, too. <laughs> and, of course, we all thank Henry, an uh, old friend of mine as well, so we, rem- we remember Henry very fondly. Thank you all. He's still alive. Can I just <laughs> <laughs> He's on my committee. Um. Okay. Take care.